Return to the covenant, my people. Return to the covenant. Hello and welcome to the Science of the Covenant podcast. And as you know, this is the podcast where we study the Bible weekly and the biblical covenant and its deeper meanings. So do you have your Bible ready? Because if you do, we're about to get into a good discussion tonight with a good discourse. So now, as usual, I would turn it over to my co-host. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, we have uh, at least two more studies on this particular <clears throat> theme that we have been dealing with. And this evening, we'll be dealing with the sixth and Jehovah's Will. We'll be dealing with the seventh next week, and we'll be finished with this particular series. And this what we'll be dealing with today. We'll be dealing with the sixth which is a confessional phase. And to get started, we want to turn to the book of Leviticus. And in the book of Leviticus, we want to look at uh, chapters 4 and 16. So we want to start off with Leviticus chapter 4 and want to look at verse 4. And here it reads, it says in Leviticus chapter 4 and verse 4, and he shall bring the bullock unto the door of the tabernacle of the assembly before Yahuwah <clears throat> and shall lay his hand upon the bullock's head and kill the bullock before Yahuwah. Okay, what we looked, what we just looked at there was a process in which they would uh, kill the sacrifice. And one of the things that they did, especially with the sin offering, they would have put the hand upon the head of the goat and cut his throat and, and to slay it. Okay, we want to follow up on this same scenario as we go to this 16th chapter of the same book of uh, Viagra, which is Leviticus. And we want to look at a couple of verses there in Leviticus chapter 16. <clears throat> and we want to look at verses uh, 10 and 21. We'll start with verse 10, Leviticus 16:10. And he had reads in Leviticus 16:10, he said, "But the goat on which the lot fell to be for Azazel shall be presented alive before Yahuwah to make an atonement with him and to let him go for Azazel into the wilderness." Okay, so here we are talking about the scapegoat and the Hebrew name for the scapegoat was Azazel. So Azazel was the scapegoat. Okay, and in conjunction with verse 10, we want to go to verse 21 of the same 16th chapter of the book of Leviticus and it says, and a Haran and a Haran shall lay both hands upon the head of the live goat and confessed over him all the iniquities of the children of Yasharel and all their transgression and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. So in this sixth phase of confection, it is carried out in very much the same way as the first confessional uh, phase. In our first confessional phase, 
our sins were confessed over the head of the Lord's goat, whereas in the sixth, which is the second confessional phase, this <clears throat> same uh, process is being used on Azazel, the scapegoat. Now, what we uh, now now in this second uh, confessional phase, we're going to observe how the sins are laid on the scapegoat, just like they were laid upon uh, the Lord's goat. But this time, the sins uh, confessed over the head of the live goat, which is the sec which is the scapegoat, which is to be sent into the wilderness. So in other words, they had a fit man that after the high priest Aaron had laid or confessed the sins of Israel over the live goat, they were to take it in the wilderness. So let us now take an introspective look at this in the antitypical sense in the heavenly sanctuary tabernacle. When we observe the treatment of the live goat, which is the scapegoat, how do we identify it with the heavenly tabernacle. So what we're trying to do is show that on earth they had, in the earthly tabernacle, they had a scapegoat. So we want to see how uh, this plays out in the heavenly sanctuary. So at this juxtaposition, let us draw some analogies between what happens between the typical goat connected to the earthly sanctuary tabernacle and his antitypical scapegoat connected to the heavenly sanctuary tabernacle. Now, we read in Leviticus uh, 16.10 how that the uh, scapegoat here, uh, how that the scapegoat, which we call Azazel, shall be presented alive before Jehovah and to make an atonement with him and to let him go into the wilderness. Okay. Now, with that in mind, knowing the scapegoat and what is to be done with him, we want to look also in the 16th chapter of Leviticus. And this time we want to go to verses 20 through 22. Okay, Leviticus 16. And we want to start with verse 20 and move through 22. And here it reads, it says, And when he has made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the assembly and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Now remember the live goat is Azazel, the scapegoat. And a and Aharon shall lay both hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Yasharel and all the transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniqui iniquities into a land not inhabited, and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. So what we are experiencing here is that after Aaron had put all 
of the sins or confess them over the head of the scapegoat, then they were to send the scapegoat into the wilderness. So what we understand from these passages of Scripture is that the live goat was to be presented before Yehoah to make <clears throat> an atonement with him and then to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. What we notice in these verses is that this live goat is to serve the purpose of a scapegoat, even though this goat is referred to as a scapegoat, yet in another sense, the word scapegoat is taking is is talking about how it was to function. We cannot just use the word scapegoat as a noun to identify it, but to also see the word scapegoat as a verb describing both its behavior and function. <clears throat> so just what is the behavior and function of what it means to be a scapegoat? We can get into the behavior functioning of a scapegoat by understanding what the verbal meaning of a scapegoat meant. Our word scapegoat comes from the Hebrew word azazel, and azazel means a goat for going away, okay? So when we talk about a scapegoat, we talk about a, a, goat, a goat for going away. And moreover, when we talk about a goat for going away, we are talking about eventually it will go away with the sins of Israel. When we read in Scripture about the scapegoat, the only passages which speaks about a scapegoat is found in the 16th chapter of Leviticus. There's no other book in the Bible or passages that talk about the scapegoat other than the 16th chapter of the book of Le Leviticus. Therefore, in order for us to identify the scapegoat in its antitypical form, we must compare it with passages of Scripture which align themselves with either the meaning of what scapegoat is or how a goat in other passages of Scripture are used. And once having put these two scenarios together, we should have a sufficient evidence as to both who the scapegoat is and how the scapegoats functions. So we want to we want to deal with that. Therefore, what we'll do at this juxtaposition is to start with what we call the functional behavior of a goat, and then we'll proceed with the identification of this functional behavior by pointing out how it relates to the antitypical scapegoat. So the next subheading that we're going to deal with is the functional behavior of the scapegoat. Now, one of the things we want to observe in this portion of our study is how a goat functions in Scripture as far as it has been aligned with human behavior. And dealing with this point, when dealing with this part of our study, we want to use a principle of interpreting the words 
in Scripture. And this principle of interpretation we'll call, we'll use is called the law of first mentioning. Now, the way in which this law operates is that when one wants to know how a word used in scriptures will function in other passages of scripture throughout the Bible, one sees how it functions when it is first mentioned in the Holy Writ. So let us apply this law of first mentioning to the word goat. Let us now go into the Holy Rite, into the Holy Writ, and see the very first time in which the scriptures introduces us to the word goat. So when we look at the very first time goat is being used in the scripture, it is found in Genesis, in the book of Genesis, the 27th chapter, I want to turn to Leviticus chapter 27, and in Baruch Sheath, or in Genesis 27, and we want to look at verse number 9. And this is the very first time goat is mentioned. It says here in verse number 9, it said, Go now to the flock and fetch me from thence two good kids of the goats, and I will make them savory meat for your father such as he loves. Okay. Now, this is the first time the word goat is used. And what we want to look at and see how it is being used in this context. Moreover, when we continue to read the context of this ninth verse, along with verses 10 through 29, we discover that Isaac's wife, Rebekah, and his son, Jacob, use goat skins to deceive him and believing that Jacob was his brother Esau, who was the firstborn, to steal his birthright. Okay, so that's very important. The first time that we see goat being used, it is being used in, in a sense of deceiving. If we are to see how the word goat is first being used in Scripture, it is being used in, de in, de in deceptive, it is being used deceptively. Does this mean that every time we read about a goat in the Holy Writ, it has something to do with deception? No, no, not at all. Not in all instances is the word goat used deceptively in Scripture. But the point that we will kind of point out is, generally, when a word is first used in, in the Torah, it is how it would be used in a number of ways that fits into a certain context. However, there are a number of them which use the word goat in a deceptive manner. Okay, let us, we already looked at uh, Genesis 27, how it was being used deceptively. Let us turn into uh, Genesis uh, chapter 37 and we want to look at verse number 31. In verse number 31, it says, And they took Joseph's coat and killed 
a kid of the goats and dipped the coat in blood. Okay. Now, when, when Yosef went down to see his brothers after Jacob was telling them to go down and see how they were doing, they were so envious of Joseph because the father paid more attention and, uh, to Joseph. And matter of fact, he gave him a, 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 a coat, a special coat. And so his other 11 brethren, they were envious of him. So when he went down uh, to see how they were doing, they had plotted against him to take his life. And so what they did, uh, they eventually ended up selling him. But what they did in order to fool the father, they took a goat and dipped his coat that they had taken off of him prior to him being sold to the uh, Ishmaelites and the other uh, caravan that was coming along, and they dipped it in goat's blood. And when the father saw it, he said, no doubt my son has been killed by some animal. So what we are looking at is, again, we are seeing that the uh, goat is being used in a deceptive manner, okay? And so when we look at the deceptive manner in which goat is used, then that's some indication of how it's going to be used in the context in, in many of the scriptures that we read. And then when we turn to First uh, Samuel, in First Samuel, the 19th chapter, and we look at verse 13. First Samuel 19, 13 says, And Michael took a teraphim and laid it in the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair for his bolster and covered it with a cloth. Now, now Michael, she was the wife of David, one of Saul's daughters. And Saul was seeking to kill David. So what she did, she took one of her idol gods and she put it in the bed and she covered it up with goat skins. And when Saul's servants came to take David, then she told him that, you know, he was sick and she had covered this idol up with uh, goat skin. And when she said he was sick, then they went back to tell Saul that he was sick and they couldn't, they, they didn't take him. And Saul said, well, bring him and the bed with you. And when they went back to get him and they pulled the goat skin off, they saw that he was not in the bed. It was one of the idols. But what Michael did, she used it to deceive Saul's servant, even though it was a good purpose. But again, we see that it was used for deception. Now, let us say that in the first mentioning of a goat is a is associated with deception, then we must ask ourselves the question, when is the first time the word deception mentioned? When, it, when is that mentioned? Okay, so now we try, what we're trying to do is trace down a scapegoat. And we're seeing already that a goat is used for deception. Now, when we turn to the third chapter of Genesis, we want to look at verse number 13, Genesis 3.13 says this, And Yahuwah Elohim said unto the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent 
beguiled me and I did eat. Okay. She said the serpents did beguile me and I did eat. All right. So this was the situation is that after knowing the covenant that Elohim said not to eat of a certain tree and she ate of it. And when she had eaten it, Elohim is questioning her as to what she did. And she says she had eaten of this tree. And why did she do it? He, she said, because the serpent beguiled me. Now to beguile means to deceive. That's what it means. It means to deceive. So he deceived her. Now let us turn, let us turn over into the New Testament and we want to look at First Timothy. Let's look at First Timothy and chapter two and verse uh, fourteen. Okay, that's First Timothy two fourteen says it said, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in transgression. Okay, so it's saying here that Adam. He wasn't deceived, but certainly Paul is pointing out that Eve, she was deceived, okay? So we see goat is dealing with deception, and deception was first used by the serpent. And then when we turn to 2 Corinthians, and we look at the 11th chapter, Okay, 2 Corinthians 11, and we look at verse number 3. It says, he said, But I fear, lest by any means, as a serpent beguile Chua or Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Messiah, in, in the Messiah. But the point that we want to point out here in this verse of the 11th chapter and verse 3 of Second Corinthians is that he is saying here, lest by any means as a serpent beguile Eve through his subtleties. So we see that she was deceived. So here... We see in these texts, uh, here we see in these texts, we find that the first time deception is carried out in the scripture is in Genesis 3.13, and it's associated with the serpent in Eden. Moreover, we discover in scripture that the serpent didn't act alone in the deception of Eve. Okay, let, let us find out what, what else happened there uh, when we deal with, with her deception. Okay, so we want to turn to the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, we want to go to chapter uh, 9, Revelation chapter 9. No, that's not Revelation chapter 9. We want to go to Revelation 12 and verse 9. Okay, Revelation 12. And verse 9, okay, now here in Revelation 12 and verse 9, verse 9 reads, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. Okay, we want to stop there. 
Now, what we notice here, we thus found out that when gold is mentioned in scriptures, it is coupled with deception. And when deception is first mentioned in the scriptures, it's coupled with the serpent. Okay. So the Bible is saying here that the great dragon, which was cast out, and one of the first names or titles that he is given, it said that old serpent. Now we know the serpent is one uh, uh, entity, and then he said called the devil and, and Satan. Now we know that the devil and Satan are all one. And we know that Satan was the one that spoke as a ventriloquist through the serpent. So since the serpent allowed himself to be used to do what Satan wanted him to do, then the book of Revelation is looking at them as they are one, but even though we know they are two. So the serpent becomes synonymous with Satan because he did Satan's biddings. So what do we have here? In Revelation 9, we are told in 12, 9, we are told that the serpent is listed among a number of the appellations for the adversary. We are told in this text that he is referred to as the following. He is referred to as the great dragon. And because he used the serpent, he is referred to as the old serpent. And because he is devilish, he is, uh, he is, he is referred to as the devil. And because he's the adversary, he is referred to as Satan. What we notice among the various names he was given was that old serpent. Because that old serpent is what started it off with Eve. He used that serpent to deceive her. While the devil and the old serpent are two individuals and distinct entities, yet here in Revelation 12, 9, they appear one and the same. And if, and if we notice also in the same ninth chapter of the book of Revelation, it says that that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. Now, if you notice there, what is it doing that John is saying that the deception started with Satan and we can see Satan here. And he says, when he get through giving all of the names or the titles for the adversary, he said, which deceives the whole world. Okay. He said he deceives the whole world. So he's still up to deceiving in the book of Revelation. He started in the book of Genesis. And even in the book of Revelation, he's still deceiving. Okay. So now, as we look at that, in Eden, he deceived the known world, which was composed of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And in the end of time, it says in Revelation 12, 9, his same ambition is to deceive the whole world. So thus far, we have clear evidence that the goat Azazel is akin to Satan. Now that we have traced the goat to deception, and the deception to the serpent, and the serpent to Satan, let us now see how this deceptive functional behavior of Satan further identifies him as a scapegoat. 
let us now go to the scapegoat scenario of identifying the scapegoat. Let us, at this juncture, backtrack. Let us go back to Leviticus chapter 16. I want to go back to Leviticus 16. Okay, here in Leviticus 16, we want to uh, look at three verses, okay, in the 16th chapter. Okay. Now, we want to look at verse 10, 21, and 22. Here's what it says. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the to be for a gazelle shall be presented alive before Jehovah to make an atonement with him and to let him go for Azazel into the wilderness. And verse 21 says, And Aaron shall lay both hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Yasharel and all the transgression and all their sins putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness and the goat shall bear upon him all the iniquities unto a land not inhabited and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. From these verses, we can see how the scapegoat was to function. Okay. First, we are told that the scapegoat was to be presented before Yahuwah to make an atonement with him. If we say that the scapegoat is Satan, then how could he atone for us? Okay. So, in other words, when we see in Leviticus 16.10, when it uses this word atonement like it did even with Yah's goat that was slain for our sins. Uh, he is using the same word atonement with the scapegoat. So what we want to see is how could he atone for us? One of, one of the factors which Leviticus 16.10 appears to be saying is that Satan, the scapegoat, will atone for our sins by giving us redemption. And there are many Jewish and Messianics who fail to identify who Azazel is, and they attribute him to being Yeshua simply because the word atonement is mentioned alone with the scapegoat in the same passage. And because we know that in order for us to be atoned for, it has to be by Yeshua. While this is true, yet we must understand how atonement is used in this verse. Let us understand how the word atonement is used in this passage of Scripture. Let us do this by first understanding what the word atonement means. Our word atonement comes from the Hebrew, the Hebraic word, Kephah. Now, Kephah, K-A-P-H-A-R, Kephah is a singular word 
which means cover, kepar. Kephar means to cover. The same Hebrew word kephar, which is singular, is kippurim, written in its plural form, meaning coverings. So kephar means cover, singularly, but kippurim, K-I-P-P-U-R-I-M, means coverings, more than one in the Hebrew language. So you have kephar and kippurim. Now, to atone or atonement means to cover. That's what it means. Therefore, we ask the question, what is being covered? It is our sins which are being covered. Interestingly, the word for atonement in the New Testament is reconciliation. And reconciliation is the English word that comes from the Greek word keta lage, keta lage, K-A-T-A-L-L-A-G-E. So the, our word reconciliation comes from the Greek word keta lage, and keta lage means reconciliation. What we must understand is that it was sin which alienated us from our creator and maker. Consequently, in order to be able to be reunited with him again, sin has to be taken away. Therefore, for sin not to stand in the way between us and our creator, they have to be covered. So he covered us. Once they are covered, then the barrier of sin is no longer able to separate us from him. And because our sins are covered, we are reconciled to him. To be reconciled to him means that the broken relationship that sin caused in separating him from us is now mended. This mending is what we refer to as the atonement. Atonement simply means at one meant, which would translate into us being reunited to our creator. When Yeshua, our goat, was killed for us, he brought us back in harmony with our heavenly father. So now that we understand that atonement means to both cover and reconcile, let us now apply this same word, atonement, to the scapegoat. So when we read in Leviticus uh, 16.10, when it says, but the goat on which the lot fell to be for Azazel shall be presented before him to make an atonement with him and to let him go for Azazel in the wilderness. So he is saying the live goat, which was a scapegoat, that was presented before Yahuwah to make an atonement with him. So it, it, it expresses to make an atonement with him. Okay. All right. Let's, let's explore that. So just what does it mean to make an atonement with him? And when he's talking about with him, he's talking about the scapegoat. As we looked at the meanings of atonement, which are to cover and reconcile, when we deal with Yah's goat, we said 
this same term. Now let us apply it to the scapegoat. Okay. Now, when we look at Leviticus 16, verse 21, now here's what it says. And Aaron shall lay both hands upon the head of the live goat. Again, I emphasize the live goat is the scapegoat. And confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Yasharel and all their transgressions in all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and says, send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. So as we pointed out in earlier lessons, when they laid hands on a goat and they confessed their sins on that goat, that was a way of transferring the sins uh, to the scapegoat. Okay. So when they did it for Yah's goat, they transferred the sins of Israel to uh, Yah's goat, which was Yeshua. Okay, now when it comes to uh, confessing the sins that was on Yah's goat, Aaron is now taking those same sins and he's confessing them over the scapegoat. So when he says he's confessing these sins, all of the sins, the iniquities, and the transgression on the scapegoat, that's not the first time we heard that. The first time we heard it is when they confessed these same sins over Yah's goat. And now on the Day of Atonement, then when you got the scapegoat, it takes the sins that was put on Yah's goat, and Aaron is confessing those same sins now over the scapegoat. And when we deal with Yah's goat using this same term, then we have to make a distinction about what is actually taking place. So in Leviticus 16.21, which we just read, Aaron the high priest was told to uh, lay both hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of, of Yasharel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat. What we must take into consideration is that these same iniquities, transgressions, and sins were put upon Yah's goat. For we read in Leviticus 16, and we read verses 15 and 16, it says, Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring the blood within the veil, and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat, and he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions in all their sins. So shall he do for the tabernacle of the assembly that remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. So you see, those same sins that he put on the scapegoat were the same sins that he took in, that he put on uh, the Yah's goat and he brought the blood as an evidence of that into the sanctuary. So Leviticus 15, Leviticus 16, verses 15 and 16, th uh, those same sins which were put upon the scapegoat had his first been placed upon Yah's goat. So what we are experiencing when Israel sins are confessed over the scapegoat is that they were first confessed over Yah's goat, which would mean that the scapegoat got Israel's sins from Yah's goat. And Yah's goat 
initially got Israel's sins when Aaron confessed them first upon the head of Yah's goat. Let us now go over what we have in antitype thus far. Aaron, the high priest, and type would be equivalent to Yeshua, our high priest, and antitype. Israel's sins on the Day of Atonement were first confessed over Yah's goat and type, which would be equivalent to our sins being confessed to Yeshua in antitype. Once having confessed Israel's sin over Yah's goat, the high priest would confess them the second time over the scapegoat, which would be equivalent to Yeshua taking our sins and putting them upon Satan. The antitypical scapegoat, with, which would be the antitypical scapegoat. With this in mind, let us further identify Satan as it relates to the atonement. When Israel's sins were confessed over the Yah's goat and slain, it means that their sins were both forgiven and covered with his blood. When we confess our sins to Yeshua, he both forgives us and covers us with his blood. His blood covers us. His blood is the covering for us and in looking at the blood, the blood is a symbol of life. So when he covers us with his blood, he is basically saying, I am covering you with my life. Now, when the sins of Israel were confessed over the scapegoat in very much the same way as it was done on Yah's goat, sins which were confessed over Yah's goat were imputed to it from, from Israel. And in turn, Yahzgo imputed righteousness to Israel. Israel, on the Day of Atonement, were both forgiven and their sins were done away. Now that Yahzgo had the sins of Israel, what was to be done with these sins on the Day of Atonement? Well, the high priest Aaron was now to deal with these same sins of Israel in the same manner as he did with them on Yah's goat. He confessed the sins of Israel over the head of the scapegoat, which meant that Israel's sins were imputed to Yah's goat. Sins were when the sins were confessed over 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 the scapegoat's head, thus bringing about what we call justification. When something is justified, it means it, 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 it means that things are made right or just. It is straightened out. According to Leviticus 10 and 21, they state that the scapegoat was the live goat. Now, when the live goat received Israel's sins, but it does not give its life in exchange for anything. See, when they put him on a scapegoat, the scapegoat merely received the sins, and that was it. But when they put the sins on Yah's goat, then the repentant gave its sins to the scapegoat, to the to the to Yah's goat, 
and Yazgo gave its life to Israel. So in, 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 that was in tight. So when Israel gave its sins to Yah's goat, Yah's goat gave to Israel its righteousness. However, the scapegoat receives sins, but gives, but does not give life in exchange for it. He still maintains his life. This is why the Bible said it was a live goat. So up until this point, what we are experiencing is when Yeshua, the high priest, confess our sins uh, to Satan, they are imputed to him. In this sense, atonement is being made. That's what it means by atonement. In other words, his, uh, Elohim is making things right. He is saying the devil gave us these sins, so therefore we give them back to him. So when we deal with atonement, it means at one minute. So in this case, in Leviticus 16.10, when they use the word atonement with the scapegoat, it is simply saying that Satan, in order to be atoned for us, is that he takes back the sins that he caused us to sin. And he is made at one with himself, which means he put out the sins and he's taken back the sins because Yeshua, who had never sinned, had no right even to die for him, but he did. And so when he atones for it, he's merely just taken back the sins that, he's, that he has done. He has, he's made it right. He's made it just. Yeshua gives his life for the sinner and the sinner gives his life to Yeshua. Now Yeshua had a righteous was now Yeshua, a righteous person, confesses the sinner's sin over Satan. Things are now made right and justified. When those sins are put back on Satan, then atonement is made because sin is put back in its rightful place. How is that so? The process which makes it right and just is that the sinner should die for his sins. In this scenario, Yeshua is, talk, is taking upon himself the sins of Israel and was given the life of the just for the unjust. Therefore, in actuality, he was crucified for something he didn't do, and the sinner was given life for something he didn't deserve. This is what we call Grace, grace, grace is something that Elohim give us, but we don't deserve it. We were the sinners. We should have died. But Elohim, son, came and died for us. On the other hand, Yeshua, who hadn't sinned, was getting a death sentence and a death penalty. He didn't merit that. And the sinner was getting a life sentence and a gift of eternal life, which he didn't deserve. This is what we call mercy. Mercy is said that we should have died, but because Elohim died for us, he gives us life. That's mercy. So at the crucifixion of Yeshua, we have grace and mercy coming together. And we should be thankful for the grace and the mercy because we didn't deserve it, but he gave it to us anyway. We didn't have a right to it, but he gave us grace. This is called mercy and grace was found in the redemption in the redemptive act of Yeshua being crucified for his people. Therefore, when our sins are given back to the scapegoat, Satan, what happens next? We read in Leviticus 16, 
verse 10 and 21. And here it says, in verse 10, it says, in the latter part, and after those sins was put back on him, it says, and to let him go for Azazel in the wilderness. And in verse 21, we read, it says, in the latter part, it says, once they have put them sins back on Satan, who is the scapegoat, and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. Okay. So it says that the scapegoats were sent into the wilderness by a fit man. So once the sins of Israel were returned upon its rightful owner, a, a fit man who was strong enough would send the scapegoat into the wilderness. We aren't told who the fit man was. We aren't told that. We aren't told who he is. Who was, only thing we are told is that he, the fit man was capable of leading the scapegoat into the wilderness. We aren't given his name, position, rank, or tribe. He was from that he was from. The only thing we are given are the gender and the ability of a man who was able to lead the scapegoat into the wilderness. So how do this, how do we see this part of the atonement process of the scapegoat in antitype? Okay, now, when we see that that fit man sent the scapegoat into the wilderness, how do, how is this played out uh, in its antitypical fulfillment? Okay, in order for us to determine that, let us go to the book of Revelation, and in the book of Revelation, we want to go to the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation. Okay. So when they, that fit man took that goat and led it out into the wilderness with all of those sins upon it, how does this play out in the antitypical scapegoat of Satan? Okay. Now here we read in Revelation chapter 20, and, and we want to read verses 1 and 2. And here in the verse first verse of the 20th chapter of revelation and i saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand and he laid hold on the dragon that old serpent which is the devil and satan and bound him a thousand years now what we see in here is this is that uh when we look at the antitype here in these verses, we are told that an angel bound Satan for a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit. We can see in these passages of Scripture some parallels between what was happening to the scapegoat and what was happening to Satan. Let's look, let's look at some of them. First, we see the fit man can be compared to the angel coming down from heaven, just as in the earthly sanctuary service, human servants carry on the ministry, as did the angels in the heavenly sanctuary carry on the service. So on the earthly sanctuary, you had human servants. In the 
heavenly sanctuary, you got angels who are Elohim's servants to do what he needs. So when, when they needed somebody to take that scapegoat into the wilderness in the earthly sanctuary, they use a fit man who was strong enough. And when they needed somebody to take Satan into the wilderness of which they call the bottomless pit, they use an angel to do that. He used an angel to take him. So we see the fit man and the angel kind of corresponds. Second, we see the fit man leads the scapegoat into the wilderness. The angel from heaven bounds Satan in the pit of this earth. He put him in the bottomless pit. Okay. So we see that the wilderness and the bottomless pit are somewhat equivalent to one another in antitype. Third, we see the wilderness of which the scapegoat was sent into was a type of the bottomless pit in this earth, which, which was in antitype. Now, why was it a wilderness on, on this earth? Because to remember that, uh, it says he was going to bound Satan for a thousand years. Okay. And when he bound him a thousand years, then According to scriptures, there was nobody for him to tempt. How do we know that if there's nobody for him to tempt? Okay, let us use Revelation chapter 20 and verse 3. And the Bible says, and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loose a little season. So you see, the Bible says before the thousand years started, he was bound and he wouldn't be loosed until after the thousand years were over. And then after the thousand years, then he would be let loose. But other than that, he could not deceive the nation. Why couldn't he deceive the nation? Because he was bound. He couldn't. There was no saints. There was nobody to deceive anymore. Okay. So what we see in tight that the wilderness was what the scapegoat was sent into, but in antitype, it was the bottomless pit. So the scapegoat was sent into the wilderness with the sins of Israel, as Satan will be sent into the wilderness of the bottomless pit uh, with our sins. So we want to want to close it right there, and maybe some questions, observations, some concerns that you may have as we dealt with the confessional phase of how Satan eventually will have all his sins placed upon him and sent into the wilderness for all of the sins that the saints has confessed on Yeshua. You will, Yeshua will put those sins on him, and for a thousand years he'll roam in the wilderness of this earth in the bottomless pit with our sins. One of the things I was thinking about is uh, like the anti-type you've been talking about. It's like a parallel and when I look at it, the first parallels was with the children of Israel when Yahuwah brought them out of bondage, out of Egypt. And then after that, you know, the greatest thing was when he sent his son to die for our sins, which our sins was placed on him and he died. Mm. And it seems like it's going to parallel the second time 
where he's going to gather his chosen children of Israel, his remnant. And as he, after he gathers them, except for this time, instead of the sins being put on the son, the sin's going to be put on the rightfully owner of those sins this time around. Mm-hmm. And that he's going to have to die for the sins and mm-hmm. whatnot. And even when it comes into the parallel, like uh, in Egypt, when the, they killed the uh, young male kids and mm-hmm. all that was born. And we mm-hmm. even look at it today. The only people that I really know of that have truly been killed and slain, and especially the male, are, I guess you can say, African-Americans and black people mm-hmm. and at the hand of other nations. And it's mm-hmm. just interesting to see the flip side of things that will come to being at a later time with the sins instead of going on the, you know, the, our King's son is going to be on the rightful owner, which is Satan. That's correct. You know, so what, what that is, is that when, uh, uh, Elohim's people did not keep the covenant as they should, then they were scattered over the world and they were, they're experiencing some of the curses of Deuteronomy 28 and because they broke the covenant, but when his people in the last days began to come back to the covenant and when they are being mistreated, which they will be, uh, by the governments, then what is going to happen is, is that, uh, many of us will give our life and some of us will have to run for our lives. And Mm -hmm. as we do that, if we are killed, then those who killed us, if they do not, turn and accept the covenant that we have accepted, then our sins that we have confessed uh, will go to Yeshua and Yeshua will put those sins back on Satan. Mm-hmm. But to understand this is that if the people who are slaying and killing us do not repent, then they like Satan will be cursed and they will burn for their sins as Satan is burning for his sins and our sins, mm. but he won't, he won't, he won't burn for the people who persecuted us. They'll have to burn for their own sins. The only way that they can become a part, which many, when they see us giving our lives for the cause of the covenant that we believe, many of them who are persecuting us, they would turn on our side and they will confess their sins to Yeshua and they'll be forgiven. But the ones that, we stay in power and continue to try to persecute us, even though we've gotten right with the covenant. If they don't get right, then their sins will remain on them, just like it remains on Satan. Then they also going to get the retribution uh, that Satan would get. So you are right. Is that the sins are going to return back to the one that started sin in the first place. So when our sins are confessed and put upon Yeshua, Yeshua eventually is going to put them all back on Satan. Now, some people get uh, some get kind of hot up under the collar when certain people say they're the chosen. But I think some people don't really fully understand that just because uh, some say they're the chosen people doesn't mean it's more important than the next one, because is it correct that somebody who is not from the children of Israel could make it into the kingdom? 
Well, what we, what we must understand when it says that we are the chosen people is we're not saying that out of who, who we are, but we are saying that out of who we belong to. Mm-hmm. And the way you define mm-hmm. that is by the covenant that they keep. Mm-hmm. It's like when people say only the Israelites will be saved and nobody else, and people say, you mean the other nations gonna not going to be saved? Well, you must understand in the book of Revelations, when it pointed out the 12 tribes to be saved, it didn't. It said also there will be a number that no man could number. Yeah. But one of the things that we have to understand is that when you embrace the covenant, you automatically become a part of his children. Mm. And so that makes you a part of Israel. Wow. So when you look at the fact that when you become a part of Israel, then you are subject to the same benefits that Israel is, is, is subject, subject to. Now, does this mean that uh, one church may have domination over another church? Well, the first thing that we must understand is Elohim is not going to save any church. Yeah. Now, why isn't he going to save any church? Well, number one is he, Elohim never gave us a church. He gave us a covenant, and that's what we need to understand. Now, when we talk about a church, a church, a church is the ecclesia. It is the called out people. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the word church, it means assembly. But he didn't name any uh, assembly, such as the Methodist church, the uh, Presbyterian church, or the Baptist. He never named a church. He only gave his people a covenant. So he's not going to be looking at a denomination. He's going to be looking at Anybody who is accepting his covenant, they become his children. They become Israel. And even, even Paul says in the book of Romans that, uh, that Israel, who was the olive tree, that he have broken off some branches on the olive tree because they were not uh, willing to do what he wanted to do. And he grafted in people who were not a part of the olive tree, which meant that they were not Jews per se, but he grafted them in. Why? Because they were willing to go by the covenant. Abraham had about 218 or 16 servants. Wow. And we know that when he left home, it was just he and Sarah and Lot and, 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 and himself. And then when he had children, how did he get 216 other servants? That's because when Abraham went around and he was spreading his religion, they wanted to follow Abraham. So that's how he got those servants. So when he got those servants, they became Hebrews just like he was. And so when Israel spread out upon the world and the world began to believe in the covenant that we believe, then they become Israelites as well. Wow. And one more question before we go. Uh, Why is it that Satan will be loosed after he's bound for a thousand years, is there any reasoning behind that? Yes. And I think we should deal with that in some of our future studies. Uh, but just for the, uh, asking of the question, uh, when you read revelations, uh, 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 the 20th chapter, it talks about before and after the thousand years, let us turn to revelation 20, where it says, it says, uh, in the 20th chapter and the latter part, 
it's uh, of that chapter says, after they had bound him, he said, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loose a little season. Okay. So after, so you're talking about before the thousand years, and then you're talking about after the thousand years. Well, the question would be that before the thousand years, he was bound. So, so what is happening between the thousand years when he, when he is bound before he's loose a little season? Okay. Well, if you read verse four, I think he gives us an indication of basically what will be going on. He said, and I saw thrones and they that sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. And I saw souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Yeshua and for the word of Elohim and which had not worshiped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived. Now look at this now. He said they, and they lived and they reigned with the Messiah a thousand years. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, if they lived and reigned with the Messiah, the, the uh, and reigned with the Messiah for a thousand years, then this is telling us the period between the thousand years in which he was bound and the time that he was loosed. But it starts off say they were sitting on thrones, and on the thrones they were in judgments. Now, what is the judgment about? Well, basically, that judgment is is about that when we are sitting on those thrones with Yeshua for a thousand years in His kingdom, and His kingdom is a heavenly kingdom. It is basically saying to us, we will be going over what we was dealing with in our studies already. We'll be going over the names of the people in judgment. Just like when we talked about the judgment last week, we were showing that uh, in the day of atonement, all the sins was done away with. But in the antitypical atonement, what we are looking at is all of the people that have professed the name of Yeshua, the Messiah. And did they walk in the way that he walked? that they live out the blood, which means to live out his life. And if we look at the records and we see uh, the names of the people, then the names that we're going to be going over is not our names in heaven because the angels are already going over our names even now as I talk. See, when they go over that name, they're going to see if we are qualified for the kingdom. So if we qualified for the kingdom, that means that during that thousand years that we on those thrones doing the judgment, then we'll be looking over the lives of the people who did not make it to the kingdom. Mm -hmm. This is why the Bible says then after that, we're going to have the second resurrection. See, the first resurrection is for the righteous. The second resurrection is for the unrighteous. And so once we get to heaven, we're going to be on thrones. We're going to be on judgment and we're going to look over the record. And when we look over the record, we're going to see why certain individuals were lost. And when they are lost, that means that, they're going to have to burn for their sins because they never confessed them to Yeshua. And Satan, who made us sin, now have our sins plus the devilment that he did. And he's going to burn the longest because he's, the, he's done the most sins. So it's going to be a time of judgment that we overlook and see, did Elohim make a mistake? Did he really condemn people that shouldn't have been condemned? And the, and the main thing that we'll be doing in the judgment that a lot of people have not probably considered is that we're going to see if these people are lost like they were lost during the time of the flood, we're going to actually see if Elohim, who is our father, and Yeshua, who is his son, we're going to see if they were really just in doing what they did in destroying the world. Mm. We'll get a chance to see that, that they were just. It's not just going over the record of the sinful people, but we're going to say, well, you know, Lord, you're doing this. Are you really just? And we'll get a chance to really see that. So those are some of the things that during a thousand years that we'll be experiencing. Okay, I know I said I had uh that was the last one question, but um another question I have in Revelation twenty three, 
Now it said that. Wait, 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 wait. wait. It only has twenty-two chapters. What? No, I said uh, Revelation twenty verse three. I mean. Oh, tw- oh, twenty verse three. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And um, how it stated he'd be put in a bottomless pit and shut up, that he should not deceive nations anymore. Mm-hmm. So, um, is it still? If he was still loose, would he still be able to deceive nations? That it still would be somebody here for him to deceive. Well, that question is this: is that if the saved are on them thrones, then basically uh, the uh, people who have not gone. That's what I say that this needs a further study because we find that when he comes a second time, the people that does not go with him, they're going to be struck dead by the brightness of his appearance. And this is why in the, in the 20th chapter of Revelation, it speaks about the second resurrection. The reason why you're going to have a second resurrection, because everybody will be struck dead who would not go to the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And therefore Satan has nobody else to tempt. And so when we come back the third time, with us, he's going to resurrect the dead, and then when he resurrected the dead who are unrighteous, then they are going to be raised, and when they get raised, Satan is going to try to use them to take over the city that he sees that is uh, above them and to try to take it over, and this, and this is why uh, they're going to be destroyed with fire, according to the book of Revelation. Fire is going to come down from heaven to destroy them. So when you look at uh, the earth, he has nobody to tempt. Mm -hmm. He said all of the nations uh, are no more. So if they're no no more, then that means there aren't any people. Okay. All right, right, Pastor. Can Mm -hmm. you take us to the throne of grace? Okay, I love it, Father. Again, we thank you for another opportunity. I've been able to express the circulatory system of the blood and how the blood represents the sins of both the righteous and the unrighteous. The righteous blood was Yeshua's blood and the sinful blood was the sinner's blood. And as we have given us, and as we have given him our sinful life and he has given us his righteous life and eventually all of the sins that we've laid upon Yeshua, he would lay upon scapegoat one day. Help us be faithful, Father, that as we study our word, and to be clear as to where we are going and how we're going to get there, that you will give us power, Heavenly Father. And as we see this world, Lord, coming to an end, and that the true people, O Heavenly Father, are being singled out, and they're going to try to oppress thy people, that you will give us the strength to stand, and most of all, that you will be by our side, and to be able to give us the things that we need at the time in which we need them, that if we are to give our lives, we can, but if we can escape, then you can allow that. But we put our life into your hands like they did in the days of old. And the Bible says, according to Revelation 20, some, their heads were, they were beheaded. But those who were beheaded, O Heavenly Father, they will come forth in the new kingdom because they were beheaded for your cause. They were killed doing the things that you wanted them to do. And as a result, Lord, you're going to give them eternal life. And those who put them to death, if they did not repent, they will be slain, O Heavenly Father, in the eternal fires. So we rather, O Heavenly Father, to be slain in this world and get eternal life rather than not to be slain and get eternal death. So help us to choose life rather than death. These and other blessings we ask in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. In his their name, we do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Amen. Well, we hope you have enjoyed our weekly 
discourses and studying the scripture, I know I'm thoroughly enjoy it. I'm learning a lot as I continue to study the scriptures, not just in the podcast. I try to study the scriptures daily. And I ask that you do the same. Even if it's just read one verse a day when you wake up or to put Yahuwah on your mind. And then maybe one verse before you go to bed and then you find you reading more and more. And let Yahuwah fill your life with joy just by reading his scriptures and what he's going to tell you. That is our podcast for this week. We want to encourage you to return to keeping the covenant which Yahuwah has cut with us. Whether you part of Israel or, or being drafted into Israel from another nation, you're still one of us. Be sure to follow our podcast weekly. Feel free to email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com with your questions or comments of some of the podcasts you have listened to. And as it states in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, study to show thyself approved unto Elohim, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Unto next week, Israel. Shalom.